be seated. Acts chapter 2, sermon text for tonight. Acts 2, beginning in verse 42 to verse 47. And then we will uh, read, I'll read, you can follow along if you'd like, Article 29 of our Confession of Faith that's found or begins on page 83 in the back of the blue hymnal. Let us hear from God's holy word, infallible, inerrant, uh, given to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as holy men are taught of God. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, God's holy word. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Article 29 deals with the marks of the true church and wherein it differs from the false church. And it says this, page 83 in the back of our hymnal. We believe that we ought diligently and circumspectly to discern from the word of God which is the true church, since all sects which are in the world assume to themselves the name of the church. But we speak not here of hypocrites who are mixed in in the church with the good, yet are not of the church, though externally in it. But we say that the body and communion of the true church must be distinguished from all sects and that call themselves the church. The marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if it maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing of sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church. Hereby the true church may certainly be known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. With, With respect to those who are members of the church, they may be known by the marks of Christians, namely by faith, and when, having received Jesus Christ, the only Savior, they avoid sin, follow after righteousness, love the true God and their neighbor, neither turn aside to the right or left, and crucify the flesh with the works thereof. But this is not to be understood as if there did not remain in them great infirmities. But they fight against them through the Spirit all the days of their life, continually taking their refuge in the blood, death, passion, and obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom they have remission of sins through faith in Him. 
As for the false church, it ascribes more power and authority to itself and its ordinances than to the word of God, and will not submit itself to the yoke of Christ. Neither does it administer the sacraments as appointed by Christ in his word, but adds to and takes from them as it thinks proper. It relies more upon men than upon Christ and persecutes those who live holily according to the word of God and rebuke it for its errors, covetousness, and idolatry. These two churches are easily known and distinguished from each other. To be cool or to be a church? That is the question. This is one of my favorite headlines that I've seen so far this year. To be cool or to be a church? That is the question. I had mentioned the story this is connected to a few weeks ago. There were a couple of actors in Hollywood. Uh, One criticized the other for being a Christian, basically, and uh, going to a church that, at least on paper, says that the only uh, biblical expression of sexuality is in the marriage bond between one man and one woman. Uh, So this one celebrity says to the other, um, how could you go to such a place that would say such an awful thing? Etc. This is, of course, not the prevailing consensus on acceptable ways of sexual expression, the biblical one, and so this celebrity criticizing the other. If a church needed to be cool, and many at least aspire to be cool, then holding to a doctrine like this would not be conducive to their quest for coolness. Affirming the doctrines of hell and judgment would also not be conducive to your quest for coolness. This church that was being criticized is actually a thought around the evangelical world that it's one of the coolest things going. They've got the the big lights and the big show and the big rock band. And this was the church that was right at the center of uh, this celebrity's criticism, basically belittling them and saying how awful they were. Doctrines like sin and judgment not going to be cool uh, if you preach those. Exclusive truth is not cool. Uh, Saying that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the only way to God. The prevailing consensus is sort of you mix it all together and whatever is right for you, um, that's cool. With all of this, we see, sadly, even churches less and less willing to stand upon the conviction of truth. When you lose the truth, as you can see the the entire history of mainline churches in America and Europe, when you lose the truth, when you stop being willing to tell tell people that in the scriptures you will find exclusive truth that has eternal ramifications for your soul and for your well-being, when you stop saying that, people are going to listen. And they're going to take you seriously. When you tell people that it doesn't matter if you go to church, it doesn't matter if you join yourself to a church, they will stop going to church. Right? They'll vote with their feet. Well, you told me, Pastor, you told me that it doesn't matter whether or not I go. So why should I go? The uh, megachurch phenomenon is another wrinkle in this story, of course. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago as well, as we've been thinking about the church in our evening services. But uh, the megachurch movement typically, I don't want to speak too broadly or generally saying in all situations, but typically does not emphasize membership or discipline. 
That's two things that you find in uh, the megachurch movement. And that's part of wanting people to uh, remain comfortable and feel like it's, a, it's a somewhere that they can, they can go to and not feel threatened. So membership and discipline is not emphasized. And it's proven to be a turnstile for people on their way out of the church. Uh, the pattern has been, as studies have been, been conducted on this, and they've been crunching the numbers for the last decade or so, that people will go to a church with more histo- historic doctrine and practice uh, than to a megachurch with basically no historic doctrine or practice, and then eventually out of the church, no church at all. The bottom line with all of this is that if you want to be cool in the eyes of the world, you can't be a church. You can't be a real church, a true church. That stands on the conviction of truth. If you want to be a church, you need to get out of the cool game. And that's not bad news, because what is cool today is not cool tomorrow. What's cool today is not cool tomorrow. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And coolness, not a mark of the church. Not a mark of the church. What are the marks of the church? When we use the phrase, the marks of the church, we mean... uh, that which stands as a sign that what we are dealing with is the church. These things will be found in an actual church. Not sure if you know this or if I've mentioned this before, but I like golf a little bit, just a little bit. And uh, golf equipment's expensive. So I like golf, but I like being cheap as well. So I have to buy a lot of golf equipment used. So I have to know that there's a whole market out there of fake equipment, right? forged equipment. So I have to know the marks of the, the actual genuine golf club. You look at a set of golf clubs, you go to the 7-iron right at the bottom of the shaft, you'll find a serial number. There's a phone number you can call. That phone number may or may not be saved in my phone. I don't know. You call this number, you give them the serial number, they can tell you whether or not you've got the genuine article or not. Right? That's the, the mark of authenticity. The marks of the church are three, the preaching of the word, the pure gospel, the administration of the sacraments according to Christ's institution and instruction, and the practice of church discipline for the purity of the church. You look at Acts chapter 2, and uh, this passage in Acts chapter 2 is really, really important because it's immediately after the history of Pentecost, which you might call maybe the age of Pentecost, even though it was just a very short time. The history of Pentecost, where the the Spirit is given in this new way to the new covenant church, constituted under the the resurrection of Christ, and there's this this new life within uh, God's people, this added benefit of this greater reality of God's presence by the Spirit. And that whole history of Pentecost concludes, and we find here in this passage what it is that the infant church was doing. This is the church in its stages of of, uh, first beginnings of infancy. So it's important to understand that that's where we are in the history of the church and and to see what they're doing um, in this passage. The first phrase in our passage is, uh, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. This is a a verb which talks of an ongoing dedication or, or devotion, a sticking with something. Elsewhere in Acts, Luke uses this word for people who, who attend to others, uh, who stick with them every step of the way and maybe accompany them on a journey or who help them 
because of physical infirmities. You might think of those in the health and nursing industry who answer hundreds of calls every shift, right? You go in, if, if you're a nurse or work in the health industry, I mean, how many times you've got to answer uh, people pushing that button? It uh, certainly can add up over, over the course of a shift. But they are hired and paid so that they can always be ready to handle these needs. And, and the needs may be myriad. There may be all kinds of problems you have to deal with each and every shift. These are amazing people in my opinion, uh, these people who work in in hospitals and and in the health industry. Before Pentecost, Luke also uses this verb of devoting. They devoted themselves. He uses this verb to show how the twelve and Jesus' closest followers were persevering in prayer, awaiting the gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus says, I'm going to ascend on high. I want you to go and I want you to wait and I want you to pray. What they were doing is they said, okay, Jesus said to pray, we're going to pray. You can imagine that those were days uh, that were filled with much prayer. Good lesson there for us, too. Jesus knew exactly when the Spirit would be sent and how and why and all of those things. And yet he goes and tells his people to pray. Right? God is sovereign. He knows the beginning from the end. He still tells us to pray. So they were devoted to prayer, waiting for the Holy Spirit. And here, they are devoted to the marks of the church in Acts chapter 2. The marks of the church. To word, to sacraments, and to prayer. And here we see first is the apostles' teaching to the word. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching of the word of God. They were concerned with the content of the message. The Christian faith, the Christian gospel message is filled with content. You need to know what it says. Faith is, not, um, is, is certainly more than that, but it's not less. Right? Faith is more than just bare knowledge, but it's not less. You need to know the content of the message. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 to his, um, his disciple Timothy, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Continue in what you've learned, whether it was from, uh, Timothy was raised by a couple of Christian women, and uh, he was raised, or at least with a, with a respect for the Jewish scriptures, right, in the, in the house with the Old Testament, where it would have been taught that. Continue in what you've learned from them and from Paul, and what you have believed, knowing it, knowing what uh, you have learned, and continuing in it. Paul calls the Colossians to do the same thing in chapter 1. Continue in the faith. Continue in what you have learned. Stable and steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. If you want to be solid in your faith, you need to know your faith. And you need to be growing in, in knowledge. This is the apostles' teaching as we read. These were men who had been with Christ. They had been especially commissioned by Jesus as they were sent out. Uh, we can see, we can read in... Uh, Gospel of John, in the Last Supper account in the Gospel of John, which is very protracted compared to the other Gospels. But John 15, Jesus says uh, to his disciples, who would be apostles, you shall bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This was a special job, a commission for the twelve. John 17, Jesus goes on to say, I have given, uh, he's praying to the Father here, and he says, I have given them, that is the twelve, your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Right? Do your work of spiritual life in them as it's connected to the truth. You can't, we can't sacrifice truth on the altar of spirituality. The two need to go hand in hand and work in concert with one another. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So they had been sent out with this mission to teach and to preach the word of God. And to especially be those appointed for the establishment of the church in its infant stages. The Christians were not, when it says they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's not to say that they were devoting themselves to a system of doctrine that had been constructed by the apostles at that time. That's merely to say they were sitting under the teaching, the actual act of teaching. They were devoting themselves to hearing the apostles preach and teach the word of God. And that's because the Christian life, as we said, is a growth in knowledge. John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is about knowing God. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They also devoted themselves to fellowship, as it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. This word is koinonia. And sometimes you see ministries try to bring that from the Greek into the English, koinonia ministries, fellowship ministries. There was actually one in Wheaton called koinonia fellowship, which I thought was interesting. Fellowship, fellowship. A bit of a redundancy. They said they devoted themselves to the fellowship. This uh, word has a broad range of meaning. Right? Fellowship can mean, in, the, in the, the broadest sense, kind of a general coming together, can mean a very narrow and intimate fellowship, a close fellowship, even a, a familial kind of bond. So what is the fellowship that they had here in the early infant stages of the church? Well, uh, Luke goes on to say here in the book of Acts, um, that he explains it by saying the breaking of the bread. This is really an explanation of the kind of fellowship they were having. What kind of fellowship was it? It was a fellowship in the breaking of the bread. The question that probably naturally comes into our mind is, that, well, that sounds like something that might be connected to the Lord's Supper. So is Luke talking about communion here, or is he talking about fellowship lunches? Potlucks for some of you out there. Right? Are we fellowship lunches or communion? In the early church, these were closely related, though. These would have been closely related. The Lord's Supper and coming together to break bread together over a a more protracted meal. There's a lot of evidence that there's extensive sharing among the church, especially in this passage. This passage can make people a little bit uncomfortable because it can say things like, uh, they had all things in common, in verse 44. All the believers were together. They had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Right? This is the, if people are trying to bring together communism and Christianity, this is their favorite passage to go to. Really what Luke is doing here is he's showing us that the early church was like a family. It was like a family. And when there is need in a family, right, a a father and a mother see a son or a daughter in need, right, adult children, a brother and a sister see that each other has need, what do you do? You do what you need to do 
to meet those needs. And that's what the early church was doing because it was like a a family. So when it says in verse 45, selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Those words there, there's some pretty good evidence that what we're talking about here would have been extra properties. So they would have sold people, for instance, who may have had vacation homes or investment properties in that day and age, as as strange as that may sound, that they would sell those, their non-primary homes, from time to time. And then they would sell all the possessions on that property. So the, the, today's equivalent would be someone has a lake house and uh, feels particularly generous. They sell that lake house, sell everything in it, take all of the proceeds, and they give it to the work of the ministry, the work of the gospel. See, Luke is showing us that the early church was being brought together like a family. So there's all this uh, there, uh, evidence that they had many things in common, extensive sharing. They were, loving for, uh, they were loving one another, taking care of one another. And when they were devoting themselves to fellowship and to the breaking of bread, it's probably, most likely, that they were doing both. They were coming together to share a meal as they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. You know, this can happen now. I don't know that I haven't heard any of you complain about the length of my sermon saying that we need a meal in the middle of it, but you can imagine that the apostles probably would have gone on for a pretty long time. They were probably pretty long-winded. So you would have the apostles teaching, you would have people joining together in this kind of new thing, and they would share a meal together, and then as they're all together, they would also celebrate communion. They would celebrate the Lord's Supper. It would have been natural for them to do so, to share a meal and to share the Lord's Supper. Many churches, even in our Reformed tradition, will still do this. They will do fellowship lunches on communion Sundays, which is a great idea, by the way. A great idea to do that. Uh, But this is something that was part of the regular practice of the church, to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. There's all kinds of evidence that the early church celebrated communion, the Lord's Supper, each and every time they came together on the Lord's Day. Every Sunday, you would hear a lesson from Scripture, you would hear the preaching and teaching of the Word, and you would observe the Lord's Supper. And just like the Lord's, uh, just like the preaching of the word never got old and stale for the early church, so the observation of communion never got old for them, right? They had great joy coming together and celebrating the Lord's Supper even each and every week. Just offering that up for your consideration. Another part of this fellowship, other than uh, joining for meals and for communion, would have been a charitable distribution for those who had need. So this would have been a natural working out of the coming together to hear the teaching, uh, to share a meal, to observe the Lord's Supper. They would have then took up a collection. They would have taken up a collection in order to address any needs uh, that they had, the brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, to care for them in a special way. So they devoted themselves to teaching. They devoted themselves to fellowship, which is the breaking of the bread, sharing a meal together, and then also observing communion. And then lastly, they devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. This is to signify that more than just the content of the teaching in the early church, it was, it was uh, certainly about learning the word of God and learning about the kingdom of God. But uh, there was a devotional aspect to it as well, a deep spirituality, giving themselves to prayer, 
to public prayer. The great privilege of uh, the, the church is to come together and to join publicly in prayer. To know that there's this special aspect of God uh, hearing us as uh, we pray corporately. They were devoting themselves to prayer. So what we have in some is the infant church got together basically for three things. The word, the preaching of the word, the fellowship culminating in the Lord's Supper, and prayer, and prayer. We have here a, a primitive, I'll admit that it's primitive, but I think it's fairly clear. We have here an example of the means of grace. Simple worship, simple worship that was done in glory, glorifying to God for the building up of God's people. Reformed worship, one of the things that's so beautiful about it is that it's simple. It's simple. It can be done anywhere in the world because it's about the means of grace, the word, sacraments, and prayer. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, What are the, the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer is this, The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. This is how God communicates to us the benefits of Christ in the context of the church. The preaching of the word, the administration of the sacraments, and prayer. You could call these the positive marks of the church. The positive marks of the church. If you'd find a church, this is what you would find. Is there the preaching of the word? The pure gospel? The sacraments? Is there prayer? All churches must have these. For this is how redemption and salvation are communicated to us through the glorious institution of the church. Unless a church has these things, it is not a church. We also should be aware, or at least mark, the fact that we're talking about the apostles here. The apostles are the ones who are teaching, and there are no apostles today. Right? No matter what you see on a church sign, the pastor here is apostle so-and-so, there are no apostles anymore. Because these were the men who walked with Jesus, who were with him each and every day of his ministry, learning from him, explicitly sent out by him to establish the church. This puts us in, in a bit of a, a different situation, right? Because the early church would have had to assume that these apostles know what they're talking about. And they have this special kind of authority, this provisional authority for the establishment of the church. And that is not true today. Teaching can err, and sadly, teaching does err in all kinds of ways. And since no one has the special status of an apostle, someone may be a, a pastor or a teacher or an evangelist, but um, they might be caught up in all kinds of grievous error. And this puts an emphasis on knowing the truth of God's word, the responsibility that is universal in the church for all of you, men, women, children. We all need to be growing, giving ourselves to growing in the knowledge of the word of God. As I said last week, one of the factors in uh, the offskiting in Holland was that uh, congregations that were rooted in the word of God and who knew their Bible and who knew their doctrine, when they, when they received new pastors who were being fed all kinds of bad teaching uh, from where they were being trained, when they received these new pastors, they challenged them. They actually ended up setting them straight, these faithful congregations who received these pastors steeped in liberalism and modernism and turned them around. 
Because they had a thorough understanding of the gospel. A thorough understanding of the gospel is something we all need to strive for. Uh, to know the word of God. To, to have this gift that he has given to us. We have this treasure of through the written Bible we can have in our hands. And it doesn't replace the church. It doesn't take away the need for the church. But what a great blessing it is when we understand it in the proper context. And to learn about Jesus uh, from it. Those are the positive marks of the church. And we see from this passage in Acts that it was there. The word, sacraments, and prayer. God was building this family, the family of God. There's a negative mark as well. A negative mark of the church, and that is discipline. I believe we see it here in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 43, it says this. Everyone was filled with awe. Everyone was filled with awe. And I believe there you have something of an admission by Luke or the information given by Luke at least that the church here was an obedient church. It was an obedient church because they were listening to the apostles' teaching. They were being uh, nourished in the means of grace. And there was this working out in their life that was in accord with the commandments of God. That was in accord with the way that God told them to live. It was an obedient church. Discipline is is a mark of the church because it keeps us on the path. It's good for our souls. It ensures that we get from here to the celestial city, to the last day where we will stand before our Lord. The church is indispensable in that. The sad thing is that uh, this is known less and less in today's world. How dangerous sin is and how dangerous it is in the body of Christ. Galatians chapter 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. To the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty whoever he is. Paul says, Someone's spreading false teaching, he is going to get into the body of Christ and going to spread poison all over. So what's needed? Church discipline. First Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says that if there's this one caught up in this gross sexual sin, expel the person from among you, right? Do not let him around. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Second Corinthians 6, we talked about it last week. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. James 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Church discipline is vital because it keeps the church pure and guards our souls, and even is healthy for the souls of those who are disciplined. When Paul says, expel this person from among you so that he may be saved, so that his spirit may be saved ultimately, that God may use that as a means to call him back. If we excuse sin, if we abide sin and say, oh, it doesn't matter, we can sort of have that in our midst, we're only giving people uh, a false assurance, and that is dangerous. And so, God has ordained that the church is the place that we need to do this. To exercise discipline for the purity of the church. To guard ourselves from sin. To know that we stand as Christians underneath the authority of those whom God has ordained to be over us in a congregation. This is something that the church today needs to regain in America. We need to regain the church as a place of discipline. 
a place uh, we need to regain the church as a place where we're more concerned of the state of each other's souls uh, than the numbers of people that we have on our on our rolls. When we're in the rat race trying to attract new members, and many churches are in this rat race because as the number of churchgoers dwindles, we're just looking for how you can get as many people as possible. So you try to attract new members through your programs. You forget that the most important thing is that we serve God with our lives and that we use the means that God has given to us to keep that process moving. Right? The health of our souls. I found an article this week. I'll quote a bit at length from it. I found it particularly insightful. Uh, It says this. For the average American who is somewhere on the church-going spectrum, his understanding of Christianity is something like this. Right? So this is the average... Uh, churchgoers understanding is going to be a bad one Uh, god has promised to be our father and we have promised to be his children but the caveat of this covenant is that both parties must behave reasonably for it to remain unbroken god will give us his kingdom if we are reasonably obedient to him and we will give him our obedience if the things he commands seem reasonable and so that's how most people see it god needs to remain reasonable We'll be reasonable. Let's be reasonable about this, etc. The church's job in all of this is to ensure that both parties keep their respective ends of the bargain. If ever Papa God gets too strict, or if ever we get too rebellious, Mama Church is there to talk sense into the offending party. This is no offense meant to uh, the ladies of the congregation. I had a mom who um, was just as strict disciplinarian as my dad, probably. But just for the effect of the picture. That Mama Church is there to talk some sense into Papa God if he gets too strict. Now here's where we need to understand our cultural moment. However, as our culture has grown more secular, certain forms of immorality have become more common in the public eye, which has made societal judgments against them wane, which has dulled our consciences to the guilt those sins bring, which makes those sins more tempting, which makes us more likely to commit them, which makes it more difficult to imagine living without them, which makes God seem like the unreasonable one when he calls us away from those sins. I think that is right on. That is our cultural moment. That as we secularize, things become more and more normal that have been historically regarded as sinful and it becomes more and more difficult to stand upon the marks of the church, namely, particularly, church discipline. Mama Church rebuking Papa God, telling him to cut the kids some slack. So the church is called to regulate our lives. It's not called to regulate God. We are ministers. We, we say what God has already said. That's, that's what we do, very simply, when we preach the word. So in Acts, they were filled with awe. It was an awe that affected their whole life. It was an awe that flowed into obedience. It was a holy fear, a reverential fear. And that's what happens through the means of grace. We're filled with a reverential fear that we might obey God and serve him with our lives. So since the church is no longer at the center of society, and as this process, this fascinating process of secularization increases, we need to do what? We need to embrace our role as pilgrims, as strangers in this world, and to lean into God's word more, not less. Right? If the distinction between the church and the world grows over the next couple of decades, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful thing. We need to lean into God's word more not less. 
to give just one example and how important discipline is and how we need to see it and follow through with it. We've talked a little bit uh, about this situation in the United Methodist Church, which um, they all got together for this big thing on human sexuality and what's the official position of the church. And uh, the traditional position won out, right? The historic doctrine of human sexuality that sexual expression is only acceptable in a marriage between a man and a woman. But here's the problem. Right? You have the official position, but how do you enforce that position? Because that position is not being enforced in that church. We've seen all kinds of signs that churches all throughout, Methodist churches all throughout the country have said, we are not going to enforce this position. So if you have an official position, but it's not enforced, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. Church discipline, though, is for our good. That through the means of grace... We are filled with awe, and through that awe, we serve our God with all of our lives. Um, And it's given to us so that, by God's grace, he might get us from here to the end of our life, so that we might serve him all of our days and live and die well for his glory. Church discipline is about restoring the sinner. It's about repentance It may not be flashy or cool, but it's important, it's biblical, and its consequences are eternal. So those are the marks of the church that you'll find in any church that's constituted by the scriptures, by the word of God, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, and church discipline. Unless you find those things, uh, you do not find a church. May we be found faithful to all of these things by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your good gifts to us. And we thank you for the church. We pray that we would seek to glorify you in it and through it. And that you might remind us of how much we need. We need your grace and the means of grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's respond together.